So we come to the final section on the booklets. It's page 17. And uh, please open your Bibles as well to chapter 20. And we're going to look at a few passages. Now that we're sort of homing in on just two or three chapters, it's going to be easier to to get a sense of what's going on. But uh, I think as I begin, we need to talk about heaven and eternity because that's, in a sense, where the book of Revelation forces us to think. And I think for many people, heaven is a bit of a joke. It's a bit unreal and maybe even ridiculous. I remember just a few years ago, I don't know, it's probably five or six years ago now, there was a, a series of adverts on the tube for the BBC proms at one summer. And uh, had a huge sort of poster, you know, of the Albert Hall with lots of people in there having a jolly time listening to music. And the caption read this. He said, to hear heavenly music, you can either A, turn up to this year's BBC proms, or B, die. Or the idea of heaven is a matter of scorn. This is uh, what the director of the British Humanist Association has said. On humanist assumptions, life leads to nothing, and every pretense that it does is a deceit. If there is a bridge over a gorge that spans only half the distance and ends in midair, and if the bridge is crowded with human beings pressing on one after the other till they fall into the abyss, the bridge leads nowhere, and those who are pressing forward to cross it are going nowhere. It does not matter where they think they're going. It does not matter what preparations they've made. And it does not matter how, uh, whether or not they're enjoying the ride. They're going nowhere. But at the other extreme, if it isn't a joke, it's usually a matter of complacency or confusion. After all, everyone's basically okay, aren't they? We'll all get there in the end. And it was actually this kind of thinking that led to the development of the doctrine of purgatory. People were clearly not holy enough for heaven yet. And so a process was contrived whereby people could do something about their sin after death. We'll all get there in the end, but some of us will take a bit longer than others. But whether or not any of these sort of corresponds to what we naturally might find ourselves thinking, the case still remains that heaven is very, very difficult to conceive of or imagine, isn't it? How do we get our heads around this? It seems so unreal. I mean, have you ever wondered what you're going to do all day in heaven? You know, I mean, if you've got small children... The summer holidays can seem like a very, very long time. It's half-term next week. Our kids are very excited about that, but I can assure you that by the end of half-term, we'll be quite pleased that they're going back to school. But this is eternity we're going to talk about, we're talking about here. How do you keep someone entertained for eternity? Aren't we all going to get really bored? I mean, when we try to sort of try and imagine it, isn't that one of the things that... In our natural thinking, we we assume? Well, when it comes to seeing what the Bible says, before we get lost in all kinds of speculation and misrepresentation, I think we're in for a number of surprises. 
that actually subvert the way we naturally think and certainly challenge the way the people around us in the world think. And so we're going to take these three last chapters in in, um, three big chunks. And the first I've called the final countdown. For all the um, nonsense and confusion and sincere searching that chapter 20 causes, and we touched on that briefly at the end of last week when we talked about the millennium, and I'm sure I've not um, necessarily clarified everything by any stretch of the imagination from that, but I think what... Uh, Just to say at this stage, whatever your millennial view is, we've got to grasp the big ideas, both of this chapter and of the whole of the book. Because if there was one aspect of these chapters, I think that often gets missed amidst all the arguments, it is the fact that this is about certainties and realities. This is about what God has planned. We might think we know exactly how it's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure that in the end all of us are going to get it wrong somehow. But uh, maybe we're very confused about what's going to happen. Well, fair enough. But know this. Whatever happens, it's going to happen. Even if we can't pinpoint exactly how. And so let's grasp these uh, key points onto this. And the first is what is guaranteed to happen is the dragon's doom. And we see this in the first ten verses or so. It is guaranteed. Now, if, as I was suggesting last week as my view, which is an amillennial view, if we're right to see the millennium as representing the whole gospel age the age that we are currently living in, the last days, that's certainly my view, might not be yours, in a sense it doesn't matter. But uh, if we see it as the, the, the era bounded by the two comings of Christ, his first and second comings, then the start is marked by Christ's resurrection and the end by his return. Now, whether you're pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill, whatever mill, you will accept that Jesus will return. And during this period, if we're right in seeing this as the millennium, Satan is held back, verses 2 to 3, although he is still active. It's strange, isn't it? It's quite hard to understand what that means and what's going on there. But the church, during this period, still grows and flourishes. And that has certainly happened. Satan has been active, but he's been restrained and held back. And here are a whole load of extraordinary statistics that describe what has happened in recent uh, centuries. It took 1,400 years for 1% of the world's population to become Christians. For that to double to 2%, it took another 360 years. And then it took 170 years for that to grow from 2 to 4%. Now, don't worry too much about the specific details. This is all estimates and guesswork. But I don't think it's too far off. And then after that, from 1960 to 1990, the proportion of the world's big population who are believing Christians rose from 4 to 8% of Bible-believing Christians, that is. Now, in 2008, one-third of the world's population confesses that Jesus is Lord, 
and 11% of the world's population are what you might call evangelical Christians. Now that's an astonishing rise, whatever one says. The evangelical church, I don't mean the, um, all denominations, but the evangelical church is growing twice as fast as Islam and is three times as fast as the world's population. South America is turning Protestant faster than continental Europe did in the 16th century. And finally, South Koreans reckon that if and when the whole of North Korea is opened up and they can evangelize it, they reckon they can do it within five years just because of their numerical strength. Now, take those figures with a pinch of salt. They're not the be-all and end-all. And there's certainly no grounds for triumphalism or sort of, you know, playing the game, well, you know, we're more important or we must be right because of the numbers. We don't, it, you know, truth doesn't work like that. But what you have to come to terms with is the fact that the church has grown extraordinarily quickly, um, even in the last hundred years. And a country that I know well was, uh, of course, Uganda. Uh, there were pretty much no Christians in Uganda in about 1880, just a handful. Now, 80% of the population, at least, goes to some form of church. Now, that includes cults and all kinds of other things, but... 110, 120 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. Now, some of the details in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, are harder to work out, and it's especially difficult to try and work out what this is all about in terms of the martyrs and everything else. But we can say this at least. Those who are given responsibilities in the heavenly courts, as you find in these verses, is consistent with what Jesus promised those who follow him being given responsibilities and uh, opportunities. And so the notion of rewards and activity for the faithful is not new. But at the end of a thousand years, from verse 7 onwards, we can expect an intensification of persecution and opposition. So taking it from verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now it's a very scary thought, this prospect of persecution and opposition. But notice what his tactic is in verse 8. It's deception. Because in the end, that's all he's got. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And he cons people into thinking that he is more powerful than he is and that he is more worthy of worship than he is. Deception. And we saw that very clearly last week, didn't we? That actually he fabricates and takes on this persona. It's an identity theft from God the Trinity and goes around pretending to be worthy. And they are going to be huge numbers who fall for it. I mean, that's the thing about deception, is that it's convincing. 
You know, if something obviously is not true, then no one's going to fall for it. But if it could be true or almost true, well, people swallow it. They say, yeah, that fits. And so there are large numbers. And verse 9 says, they march across the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Now, again, I don't think that's meant to be taken literally. We're talking about, you know, the imagery of, of ancient warfare and siege. I don't think suddenly that, you know, all Christians are going to find themselves all um, sort of herded into some big city and, and the walls are going to be surrounded by the enemy. It's not going to be like that. It's, it's clearly imagery designed to make a profound theological point that there is deep opposition, and we've seen that all the way through so far. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking it's dualism. God in the um, red corner, the devil in the blue corner, and they're going to fight it out and see who wins. No, it's not like that. You would expect, with this huge build-up and the thousands and thousands of people on either side gathering for some immense battle, you would expect it to be a terrifying, long, drawn-out, overwhelming tussle, a sort of cosmic tug-of-war, wouldn't you? And people get very sort of uh, fraught and uptight about the thought of Armageddon and the great battle that's going to be on the plains of Megiddo and all this business. And uh, look for the day when, you know, the armies are going to march across the Holy Land and, you know, the Middle East is going to be the center of the doom of the world and everything else. Well, look at this. This great battle is rather a damp squib. It's over before it's begun. Look at this. They marched across, and then what happens? Verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and that was that. There's no contest. It's not a battle at all, really. It's completely one-sided. Now, to think that it isn't one-sided is to fall for the devil's lies. He wants you to think he's powerful. He wants you to think there's a big challenge going on. He wants you to think that there's going to be a tug of war, because then you're going to hedge your bets and say, who am I going to join? But if you know the outcome, if you know who's already won, well, it's a no-brainer whose side you're going to join, isn't it? But of course, that's the last thing the enemy wants. He wants it to look like a difficult decision. He's a deceiver. Don't believe a word he says. It's over before it's begun. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them, there it is again, just repeating the point, was thrown to the lake of burning sulfur. Now look where you believe. Look what happens if you trust him. He doesn't have a hope. He's had it. And he goes where the other so-called members of the satanic trinity end up. The beast and the prophet. And they'll be tormented for eternity. Now what a great day that will be. But bear in mind what it means to know this. I don't know whether some of you watched the football last night. I'm not really that interested, but my son supports Chelsea, and, and so uh, he wanted us to wait up to get the results so we could tell him first thing. Now, all the way through, you never quite knew who was going to win. And then goes to penalties, and you think, ooh, 
You could go either way. And basically, the end result was just such a sort of disappointment in many ways. It was just such a bad way to end a major match. But this battle's not like that at all. It's not, you know, it's not over till it's over. It's not a game of two halves. It's not anything like that. This is decided already. Now, imagine if you knew the result before yesterday's match, if you were interested in it. Imagine if you knew. It wouldn't be that exciting, would it? But this isn't about a football match. It's not about fans. It's not about, you know, who you support. This is about life and death. And it's about truth and lies. And it's about knowing which side to be on. It means that when persecution and opposition come, however intense, and I'm all too aware how easy it is just to say that rather than endure it. Uh, Rico was in our staff meeting this morning. He's just come back from Canada and the States, but he was doing a little mission at St. John Shaughnessy in, um, in Vancouver where Jim Packer is a member of the church and he has been thrown out of the Anglican Communion or the diocese, the church of the Anglican diocese in Vancouver by the bishop because of his views. It's extraordinary. And uh, actually, you know, he's retired or semi-retired and working in his retirement and he's a grand old sort of statesman of evangelicalism around the world. In a sense, you know, he can take that, but actually the hard job is the job of the vicar of that church who's getting it in the neck all the time and is fighting all kinds of very, very nasty battles because of a commitment to the gospel and biblical orthodoxy. Actually, to be fighting and holding ground day in, day out, when actually members of your own denomination are out to get you, that's pretty tough. So it's easy to say when we're not in the thick of it, it's a different matter altogether to actually to be committed to this when you're in the midst of it. But I guess it could come here. Perhaps it will come here from this summer onwards. I mean, the next few months, if you follow these things in the Church of England, are going to be difficult months. And who knows what's going to happen. But in the end, the enemy is doomed. He's got all kinds of schemes to split and divide and persecute and oppress God's people. And he does it all in the most bloody and difficult ways. But in the end, he's doomed. So we've got to hold on to that, whatever happens. We've got to hold on to this, come what may. But this is where things get a bit uncomfortable. Because... Yes, in this final countdown, we'll see the dragon ended, but we'll see things go on further. Look at the next section, verses 11 to 14. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. C.S. Lewis wrote these words about hell in the book, The Problem of Pain. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. Lewis goes on. We are often told of the tragedies that come from those who believe this doctrine, but of the other tragedies that come from not believing it, we are told less. Incredible. I I guess those words were written 40 or 50 years ago. And how prescient in many ways. More murder and bloodshed and horror and terror were committed by people in the 20th century who did not believe in hell than who did. By people who did not believe in God than who did. Because you see, our lives matter. Sin matters. And God is holy. There's something more chilling about this. Namely, that hell is simply God giving people what they want. C.S. Lewis again wrote this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. People who say to God... Thy will be done. And people to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that in hell, choose it. Which is a terrifying thought. Because you see, basically the idea is, someone who does not want God in their life, is not going to want God in eternity. But it's more than that. It's that God must judge and right wrongs, and bring justice. There is such a thing as right punishment. Now, I know that there are big questions about the nature of hell, and this is not the place or time to go into all of those, and uh, you know we can talk about those later, but the fact of it is a reality. And it's just. Because you see, one of the consistent themes of the whole Bible, from beginning to end, is that God is just in all he decrees. There will be no appeal courts in eternity. In human justice systems, you always have to have a court of appeal, because humans get it wrong. That's why I'm against the death penalty, not because I don't think some crimes deserve death, but because I don't trust human justice to do it justly. And one's heard of too many occasions where the death penalty has been exacted on innocent people. But with God, there will be no appeal. It won't be necessary. And the division will be decisive, and it all boils down to how we live. It's rather a scary thought for those of us who are brought up on justification by faith alone, isn't it? Saved not by works, you think? Well, what's in the book? 
The books are open. They're judged according to what they had done. Charlemagne was a very powerful and uh, wealthy uh, European emperor in the 8th and 9th centuries. And uh, I don't know whether um, this is apocryphal or not. It probably is. It's almost too good to be true. But the story is told that about 180 years after Charlemagne died, officials of the Emperor Otho opened the great king's tomb where they found the most remarkable sight, quite apart from all the incredible treasures that filled the room. They saw the skeletal remains of the king seated on a throne with the crown still upon his skull. And in his lap lay a copy of the Gospels. And they noticed that one bony finger rested immediately above The bony finger rested immediately above Mark chapter 8, verse 36, which reads, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? How do we forfeit our soul? By not coming to Christ. What is the work that is required of us? To believe in the one that he has sent the result of which is that under my name in the book of life are the recorded, the deeds and life of Jesus. John Dyer once said, A man may go to heaven without health, without riches, without honors, without learning, without friends, but he can never go there without Christ. But with Christ, we have it all. So we come at last to chapter 21. The perfect bride. So at last we come to the good news, the certain hope, the joy that is set before us, the point of everything. It's in fact the culmination, not just of the book of Revelation, but also the whole Bible. It's been eagerly anticipated since Genesis chapter 3 when God promised someone born to a woman who would crush the serpent. And the implication is that the disasters caused by the fall would be reversed. This is what Isaiah prophesied back in uh, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, behold, I'll create new heavens and a new earth. By the way, heavens there just means skies. doesn't mean that God is suddenly having a sort of makeover at home. I will create new skies and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and will take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Sound familiar? But notice how, even back in Isaiah, how cosmic this is. How global. The whole heavens and the earth, the universe. But also notice how it's about a city. Jerusalem. And when we come to Revelation 21, we find precisely the same combination. This is a development from Genesis. Because you see, in Genesis 1 and 2, where was paradise? Well, paradise was a garden. And cities, in the early chapters of Genesis, are dens of iniquity. Cities represent 
humanity ganging up together against God. And of course, the supreme example in Genesis and chapter 11 of Genesis was Babylon or Babel. What happens when you get lots of sinful people together? Well, they try to build a tower and reach up to God. It's a bad move. But in the new creation, paradise is a garden city, which is a development from Genesis 2. Somehow, actually getting groups of human beings together in a city is not such a bad after all, if they've been redeemed. And in some ways, and uh, when we have our Cornerstone Holiday Bible Week in August, which I hope you're all coming to, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah. And uh, I'm certainly not the first to call this, but uh, a subtitle for the book of Isaiah could be A Tale of Two Cities. The whole book, in some ways, of Isaiah's prophecy is, is basically the tension and distinction between the earthly Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And it's a tension that only gets resolved when we get to chapter 21 of Revelation. So the bizarre thing is that when we get here, we find a garden, yes, and the features of a garden that we can recognize, but a garden city where the idea of a city is redeemed and perfected so that now in this garden city of Revelation 21, we have something that in a way is even better than perfection. Which sounds nuts, doesn't it? But it's even better than what it was before. That was great. That was perfect. That was good. But somehow, this is more so. And I'm pushing the boundaries of human language further than they can go, aren't I? And this is one of the problems we have. Because human language is bound by human life. Vocabulary derives from experience of life. And when we have new experiences, we have to find new words. That's why scientists are constantly having to come up with new words for the new inventions they made. You know, mention the word iPod to someone 20 years ago, and they would think, what are you talking about? But now you all know what it means. We create a new word to describe a new experience or thing. How do you describe the things of eternity that are beyond our finite little lives? We can't. And even if God tried to, we wouldn't understand him. Which is why in Christ, he accommodates himself to our level. He comes down to our level and explains things in ways that we can understand, but in a sense are just a tiny, tiny snapshot of the big picture out there. It's like, you know, a parent with a a young baby. You know, it's no good explaining the laws of thermo, nuclear thermodynamics to a sort of toddler. I mean, I couldn't even do that to an adult. But, you know, it's no good trying to do that because they're just not going to begin to, begin to understand the concepts. Usually it's just like that. But you can sort of communicate like that. You know, you can make your point heard. Or you can use tone of voice to get them to stop crying, or which usually just makes them louder. But, you know... There is a form of communication, and you accommodate yourself to their level. Well, God has done that for us. And in a sense, the whole Bible is God's accommodation to our level. So, of course, there are going to be things that are beyond our minds. Of course there are. So, you know, even the language describing hell and heaven... You know, sometimes you find hell described as outer darkness where there's going to be gnashing of teeth. At other times it's described as a fire. 
and an eternal fire? How can something burn eternally? I mean, the nature of fire is that it extinguishes. It, it, it eats up and peters out when it's finished. These are all concepts from life that go far beyond, that describe things that go far beyond human experience. And we've just got to try and grasp the major ideas without necessarily trying to draw a picture of it all. And I think that's what we need to do here in Revelation 21 and 22. What is the main idea? What are the themes? What is the, the theology? Rather than how do we draw a picture of this? Because it's inevitably going to fail if we try. So what do we see in Revelation 21? Well, we see verse 2. The city comes down from heaven. Now, that's where the imagery gets in a real model. If you start pressing it too far, you get into trouble. Because you see, you look at this city and you suddenly realize it's actually a bride. Now, brides are meant to look beautiful on their wedding days. And this one is no exception. But I think most brides would pretty, be pretty upset if you said you look like a city. And then you find that this bride is not a person at all. It's the church. But as the city comes down to meet as the meeting place for God's people to meet with God, we notice that we're still talking about streets and city, uh, uh, walls and gates. And verses 9 to 21 are full of all kinds of sort of physical, tangible realities and details. This is as far removed from the concept of um, wispy clouds and airy fairy pipe dreams and you know, twanging guitars with rainbow strap guitars. No, but this is reality. That's the point it's making. This is tangible, it's physical, it's real. You know, some of these walls, they're not sort of fake. They're not like a stage set that if you leaned up against them, you'd fall through it. No, this is tangible reality. And the bride is beautifully dressed. But... uh, She's not quite stunning in the way that a bride normally might make herself look stunning because here, the groom is the one who's been at work. He's the one who has made her beautiful by making her holy and godly. But the most exciting thing is what gets said from the throne. Have a look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is where she belongs. This is home. Nothing will be a hindrance or a stumbling block. Restored is that wonderful intimacy that was found in the garden. And um, fulfilled are the many promises made to Abraham, Moses, and the people of Israel. I'll be your God and you will be my people and my dwelling will be amongst you. You remember John chapter 1? When the word becomes flesh... And John 1.14 makes his dwelling among us. Well, the Greek that John uses in that verse is very strange indeed. And it doesn't really, it's not um, very common Greek at all. And basically, literally what it says is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
What he's making is a profound theological point because in the old covenant, the way, the place you met God was the tabernacle, the tent. Tabernacle just means a tent, so don't have a sort of fancy impression. And the ark just means a box. So basically, where did you meet God? Well, when the blood was spilled over the box in the tent. And then that was uh, made more permanent by the building of the temple. But where do you meet God? Well, you go to the temple. When Jesus comes, you don't need the temple anymore because the word has tabernacled. So where do you meet God? Well, you go meet Jesus. That's where you meet God. But of course, that's slightly restricted, and it certainly doesn't seem to help us very much because we live thousands of years after him, and we can't really see him or go up and touch him and shake his hand or anything. But we have his spirit who lives within us because we corporately are the the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. And the day will come when we will be with God in his place, where we belong. A business owner was opening a new branch office of his business, and a friend decided that he would send some flowers for the grand opening. And when the friend arrived at the opening, he was absolutely appalled to find that uh, he had sent, been sent a, a wreath uh, that bore this inscription, Rest in Peace, it said. He was absolutely furious and rang the florist to complain. And after apologizing, the the florist said this, look at this way, I got the model up. Somewhere, a man was buried under a wreath today that said, good luck in your new location. (laughs) Well, but no luck is required in this situation at all because God is here and we will be with him, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And what a location it'll be. There will be no sea, no sorrow, no sickness, no suffering, no sinners. Look at verse 1. No sea. Uh, My brother-in-law is a surfer, and uh, he's just moved his family down to Cape Town. And some people get very distraught if there's, you know, the thought that there's going to be no seaside and things in heaven. Well, don't get too um, jumpy about this. Understand the theology What is going on here? Well, in the ancient world, particularly in the Old Testament uh, world, and you can see this coming out in the Psalms and some of the prophets, the sea was representative of chaos and things that were out of control. And, uh, you know, for a non-seafaring nation, as the Israelites were, the sea is utterly terrifying. Now, in this country, we have a sort of heritage of, you know, the Navy and everything else and in this country, you're never more than 70 miles from the sea, and so our attitudes to the sea are actually quite different from uh, many parts of the world. But understand the point is being made, not the geography lesson or you know, anything else. The point is that there's going to be nothing that looks as though it is out of God's control. Now, of course, we know that the sea is in God's in control, But the point that's being made here is that in heaven there's going to be nothing that even resembles chaos. There's going to be no sea. Everything will be perfect. Then look at verse 4. Every pain and suffering will be gone. No more tears. This life is full of tears. 
even for believers. I'm very scared of Christians who almost seem to pretend otherwise because actually they fool no one except themselves. And what happens too often when people claim that actually if you're Christian, your problems disappear, as one dreadful Christian song used to say. The problem with thinking that is that when the problems don't disappear, you don't blame the person who wrote the song or the preacher who preached the sermon. You blame God. And many people give up the faith because they blame God for their suffering. Now, we can't do that. But we do know a God who knows, who understands more intimately than we could ever realize because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also we know there's a time when it'll end. Do you remember as we saw with some of those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 how you know, their suffering was just for 10 days? It's not literally 10 days, but it's simply making the point that the suffering period has a number on it. It's not indefinite. It doesn't go on forever. But a life without suffering and pain will. And the reason for that is quite simple. Look at verse 7. All sin will be gone. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I'll be his God. He will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Notice liars there as the sort of the low point or climax of this list. It's fitting, isn't it? Because that is where the great liar himself ends up. Now, it's very hard to imagine any of this, which is probably why Revelation describes so much of it in negative terms. All we can get our heads around is to imagine the things that won't be there. It's very difficult to work out what is going to be there and what it's going to be like. But listen to this very helpful corrective from Uncle John from his book, Understanding the Bible. John Stott wrote this. Popular Christian devotion has perhaps concentrated too much on the negative joys of heaven, that is, on the premises of the revelation that there will be no more hunger or thirst, no more scorching heat or sunstroke, no more tears or pain, no more night, nor curse, nor death. And we should thank God for these absences, but also thank God even more for their cause, namely the presence, the central dominating presence of the throne of God. The reason for all of this is that at the center of it all, in all his glory and majesty and goodness is God. And that is why we need to see the focus of it all. 21 verse 6. Jesus is on the throne. He is the focus of our devotion, our life, our hope, our wonder and our love. He is the truly satisfying and overwhelming God. Look at verse 6. It is done. Does that ring a bell? Echoing Jesus' words on the cross, isn't it? It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Does that ring a bell? Chapter 1. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. John's Gospel. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
Now, hopefully you'll have heard all kinds of echoes from other parts of the Bible. Uh, One of the reasons why Revelation is such an amazing well of truth is because it draws together so many threads, doesn't it? But we get this very interesting description. Jesus says, I will be your God and you will be my son. Slightly bizarre, isn't it? He's addressing the bride here. But of course, when he says son, he means it theologically. For men and women, because daughters in the Roman world could not inherit legally, but in Christ all can, which is why in Galatians, it is very important to see that actually in Christ we all become sons. And Jesus says to his bride, you are my son, because you will inherit all this. It's not quite the way we usually talk about Jesus, is it? Here, Jesus is our father. Sort of shakes things up a little bit, doesn't it? But don't get too worried about it. This is metaphorical language. This is describing things that are beyond our pea-sized brains. And the important thing is that we will find that being with him is what we've always wanted. And that is what will prevent it being dull. If you're in love with someone, it doesn't matter what you're doing together, does it? You just want to be together. So, I don't know, you could be doing something incredibly dull, like stuffing envelopes or doing the washing up or whatever it is, but just because you're in love, it's great. Now, in any human relationship, that wears off a bit, doesn't it? But it won't with him. Heaven is a bit like that. I don't mean the envelope stuffing, I mean being with him. Being together. Eric Barker was a missionary to Portugal uh, before the Second World War. And during, as the Second World War um, really heated up, he sent his family home uh, to safety. He was British and he sent the family back to Britain. And uh, a few weeks later, he sent a telegram to all his friends and prayer partners and supporters to tell them, and the telegram simply said, all arrived home safely. What he didn't say in the telegram is that the family had all been killed on the journey. But he was right, wasn't he? All returned home safely. Where we belong. And we will come to the perfect city. As the city gets revealed in the second half of 21 and into 22, uh, the details sort of spill over. I mean, it just sort of overflows all these extraordinary things, and uh, it's difficult to try and get a whole sort of feel of it, everything. But um, let me just draw out a few quick things, and then we'll break, and then we'll have uh, some time for questions. Uh, but uh, you'll notice that the number 12 comes up rather a lot. I'll leave you to read through this uh, on your own, but there's lots and lots of twelves, and twelves times twelves, and various other twelves. And twelve is, of course, the imagery of the people of God. And you see this in the measurements of the city in, uh, from verse 15 onwards, in various multiples of twelves. You find it in the treasures that the city contains. And it's sufficiently large for everything to fit in it. 
And then in chapter 22, we find the tree of life is miraculous. And this is a classic example of something not to visualize but to interpret. Because you find the tree of life standing on each side of Main Street, bearing 12 crops of fruit every month. Now, you know, how do you have a tree on either side of the street? You're not meant to start sort of trying to imagine some humongous tree with a big tunnel bored through it. That's not the point. It's this tree producing 12 crops of fruit. Why 12? Because there is enough to go round for everyone. In Eden, with just a handful of people, you just needed a small tree. But when there's rather a lot more people... In the city, the garden city of God, there'll be a tree just overflowing. And to prove that the imagery is about completeness, we see in verse 2 of chapter 22, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The great panacea, the cure-all, is actually no pipe dream at all. It is the gift of God. And what do we see? Well, we see this business of the temple. Now, this is interesting. You see, after all the details have been given of the city, uh, which rings all kinds of bells from the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel and his vision of the temple and Ezra and Nehemiah, we find that actually, even though there's sort of similarities here in, in Revelation, um, you know, with all the measurements and things, we find that actually here, they're not dis- measurements of a temple at all. Verse 22 is quite clear. I do not, did not see a temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, the Old Testament had been obsessive, if you like, about the architectural details for the temple. But not in Revelation, because there is no temple. Because the Father and the Lamb are the temple. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 2, when he talked about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days, and he was talking about his body. Well, of course he's the temple. Where do we meet God now? In Jesus. You don't need a building. This is not a temple. This building is not the house of God. When will Christians stop that nonsensical language? This is not sacred space as such. It's a very useful building. All Souls is a fantastic building. It's a glorious building. I love its architecture. And I love being able to meet in there. But it's a building, not a temple. It's not the house of God. We are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in heaven, we, his temple, we with him face to face. The next surprising omission is actually light, the sun, you see. The moon... And the sun are not there, verse 23, because there's no need. Because again, we have the light from the Lord. He shines. He is the pure life-giving light. And the imagery returns in chapter 22, verses uh, 4 to 5. There'll be no more night. Again, does that ring bells with John's gospel? 
But then the most exciting thing of all, verse 22, verse 3, the life. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Do you see? Mission accomplished. Job done. No more curse. From Genesis 3. Gone. Wiped clean. And the Lamb and God will sit on the throne in the city. Do you see what that means? In the presence of sinners. Except for the fact they're not sinful any longer. They've been made pure and beautiful, dressed as a bride for her wedding. Why is there no more curse? Well, there's no more curse for the reason that the son is called the lamb. Because what did the lamb do? He took the curse on himself. It's no accident that he's described as the lamb there because that reminds us of what he's done. Remember the title of the book that I think it should be given? The lamb has won. He's done it. That's why there's no curse. And that's why these things are guaranteed. And that is what gives the angel confidence, I think, in verse 6 to say what he says of, of 22. These words are trustworthy and true. Again, what a contrast to the serpent. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This is our hope. This is our future. This is our reality. This is not fraud. But of course, we're not there yet. Jesus will return. And the book ends with this glorious, glorious confidence, doesn't it? Verse 12, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You can trust me is what he's saying. I'm coming. I'm coming. So what should we do? Come to him. Isn't that the point? He's coming, so come to him. And when you have come to him, pray for his coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Is that your prayer? Do you pray that every day? I'm not sure I'm on the ball enough to do that, but why don't we all commit ourselves to praying that every day? I suspect it'll have a profound effect on how we live our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we can do that in confidence, verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. Now, don't be thrown by the fact that it's taken him 2,000 years so far. And Peter warns us, doesn't he, that there'll be scoffers who come along and say, nah, what do you mean he's not coming back? Scoffers who say, yeah, a thousand years, two thousand years, what are you talking about? And of course Peter says and quotes the Bible, look, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years like a day to the Lord. 
Don't understand God as being slow, as some people understand slowness. No, he's not slow. He's sure. Yes, I am coming soon, he said. I remember just after we were married, uh, Rachel and I went on a little sort of city break to Edinburgh. And I remember we were walking around uh, the grounds, uh, the ruins of Holyrood uh, Abbey, which is in the grounds of Holyrood House, which is the Queen's official residence in Scotland and near where the new Scottish Parliament is. And uh, in the ruins of the Abbey, there is this plaque on the east wall, and it blew me away so much so that I had to sort of find a bit of paper and write it down what was on it. This is what it was on, uh, what it said. Here lies the body of Thomas Lowe's Esquire, late of Ridley Hall in the county of Northumberland. One instance among thousands of the uncertainty of human life and the instability of earthly possessions and enjoyments. He was born to ample prosperity. He, for several years, experienced a distressing reversal of fortune, and no sooner was he restored to his former affluence than it pleased divine providence to withdraw him together from this life. Reader, be thou taught by this to seek riches which can never fail and those pleasures which are at God's right hand forevermore, the gracious gift of God to be enjoyed through faith in Jesus Christ our Saviour. He departed this life on 18th September in the year of our Lord, 1812, and the 61st year of his age. Reader, be thou taught by this to seek riches which can never fail and those pleasures which are at God's right hand forevermore. I suspect John the Apostle would concur, don't you? I think the message of the whole book has been to persevere, to endure, to trust, because the Lamb has won. Now that is not to say that it is easy. There will be difficulties, and very often, Christians who are certain about the eternal future, I think, fall into the trap of assuming that we can be certain about everything else. We think we can be certain about our interpretation of world events, and personal affairs, and other people's lives, and and I find that very scary. We can get very arrogant, indeed. And I just sometimes want to box people's ears and say, you don't know what you're talking about. None of us does. Philip Yancey writes about his father-in-law, who was a lifelong Bible teacher with strong Calvinistic roots, and I myself, in many ways, have Calvinistic roots. And his father-in-law found his faith troubled in his final years. He had a degenerative nerve disease that confined him to bed and actually prevented him from doing the most of the activities which gave him pleasure. To top it all, his 39-year-old daughter, who was Yancey's sister-in-law, battled a severe form of diabetes, financial pressures mounted. And during the most severe crisis, Yancey's father-in-law composed a Christmas letter far from the usual triumphalistic nonsense that gets sent out every year by most people around the world, he composed a Christmas letter and mailed it to others in the family. And he said many of the things that he had once taught, he did feel uneasy about. And as he lay there, pinned to his bed effectively, he asked himself what he could believe with certainty. And in the end... 
he came up with these three things. Life is difficult. God is merciful. Heaven is sure. In some ways, I think that doesn't quite sum up the book of Revelation, but I think that makes a pretty good stab. Life is difficult. God is merciful. Heaven is sure. These are the things that Yancey's father-in-law could count on, and when his daughter died of diabetic complications the very next week, he clung to those truths ever more fiercely. I was talking to someone just this morning, and uh, they were saying that uh, in Christian counseling, 90% of counseling is to do with convincing people of the sovereignty of God. And I'd never heard that before, and it just really knocked me sideways. I thought, yeah. Actually, so many of our problems derive from a lack of confidence in God. It doesn't make the problems go away. It doesn't make them easier. But it does give us a perspective that I think is precisely the perspective of the book of Revelation, that God is in control and that he is good. Life is difficult, but heaven is sure. That is our hope. Let us hold unswervingly to it. Amen.